In our time remaining, we want to move to the third sola, sola gratia or, or grace alone. And as we look at some of the foundational doctrines that allow us to hold firm in a very turbulent culture, in a culture that is attacking each and every one of these. And I've titled the sermon this morning, That's Not Fair. I would bet that every one of you parents has heard that more times than you can even count. Just for fun, I was counting yesterday, and I was up to, I know it doesn't seem like a lot, but three or four just yesterday evening alone, and, and, and hearing either Susie or I saying, well, okay, and correcting and instructing when that was said. But there's something that, that just comes out of, well, that's not fair. That's just not fair. I remember one time I had taken one of the boys back into the back bedroom for an issue of discipline, and we had come back out, and, and one of my other children was like, that's not fair. I didn't get to go back there with Daddy. I'm like, oh. <laughs> you want it to be fair? No. <laughs> but sometimes in our narrow thinking and in our, our narrow perspective, like maybe a three-year-old might have, we argue that things aren't fair and we have no idea what we are talking about. We, we hit a string of difficulties in life and a, a, just a, a very dark time in life. And so many times it's easy to jump to, well, that's not fair. That's not fair. If God was fair, I'd, and you just sort of fill in the blank. If God was fair, I'd get a raise this year. If God was fair, I'd get a promotion this year. If God was fair, my kids would behave perfectly 100% of the time. If God was fair... My rent wouldn't keep going up. If God was fair, He would just lay the, the hammer of judgment to others for their sins. But not me. If God was fair, the Packers would... No, no, that's... It's a little later today and probably has nothing to do with fairness. But so many times we get into the, this mindset and whenever we get anything we don't like which should be very telling, that God is not fair. And really, what we almost always mean when we use the word, that's not fair, is, I didn't get what I wanted. I didn't get what I wanted. Well, this morning, as we quickly and in the next 30 minutes explore the grace of God and in one tiny aspect of the grace of God, I'd like to open by saying, God is not fair. Praise God. And really, that's about all we need to say today, but we won't. We'll say more. God is not fair. If God were fair, what would happen? I heard all kinds of things. I wasn't able to pick them out. But um, if God were fair, we would each and every one of us have to still pay the price for each and every one of our sins. And that price is death. If God were fair, we would have nothing good. Nothing good in this life or the next because we are a sinful, rebellious people. If God were fair, there would be no Christmas. There would be no cross. There would be no resurrection there would be no heaven. 
if God were fair, we would all end up in hell, and I would argue we should already be there. Praise God that he is not fair. And that he is gracious. And that while he is a God of justice and righteousness, he is also a God of love and grace. That says, this is what you deserve. But I have another option. I have another plan. By my grace, you can be saved. This morning, again like last week with the cross, it can be such a simple concept and such a weighty concept, an ocean that we could never completely swim through. I feel the same way about grace because really the cross, grace, and faith are all aspects of the same thing, our redemption and God's salvation. And so we're going to try again to focus on on grace alone. Why nothing we do can provide salvation. Nothing we do is deserving of grace. Last week it was Christ alone. And we were really comparing Christ to other ways of salvation. And that Christ is the only way. This morning with grace, it's a direct comparison to our own works. To our own ability or rather inability how do we compare those? How do we, how do we match those up? And sometimes grace is one of those concepts that we've all heard from the time we were saved. And sometimes I think we as believers can get so bored of grace. So bored of the concept. And we, we sang two different versions of the, the same hymn this morning, Amazing Grace. It's the hymn that is the most recorded by the most number of artists of any song. But do we believe that? Do we believe grace is amazing? Or or are we so used to it in our Christian circles and going to church and and just figuring, well, I, I, I got God's grace, so I'm done, that we've forgotten to be amazed and excited about what that means. And this morning as we look at grace alone, my, my simple goal is that we become amazed by grace again. Amazed by grace again. Would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2? And there are hundreds and hundreds of verses that we could go to. But in Ephesians chapter 2, we have a wonderful description of grace and how to be amazed by grace. And we're used to verses 8 and 9, the verses that we often quote, the verses that we cling to, and rightfully so. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. But I'd like to jump back to verse 1. Because those two verses, 8 and 9, are actually the end of one sentence. And verses 1 through 10, actually, in the, in the Greek, are one sentence. You think you have run-on sentences? Paul is a, is a master at this with, with phrase after phrase after phrase. And, and in the original, this is one sentence and one thought. And we jump to the end, and, and rightfully so, amazing verses. But if we don't see verses 1 through 4, we cannot be amazed by verses 5 through 9. Let me explain. Let, let's read it, and then we'll, we'll unpack it. Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. 
As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were nature by nature object of God's wrath. But, but because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Amen? Fantastic passage. Fantastic passage that brings us back to being amazed by grace, to seeing grace as incomparable riches. But a starting point before we unpack that is is to even ask the question, what is grace? What is grace? So many of these terms we're using in this series are are Christianese. We've thrown them around. And so last week we started by, by describing what we meant by the cross alone. This week we start by describing what we mean by grace. You know, is it something we say at the table before we eat? God is good, God is great, food's on the table, so let's eat. I don't know. I would argue that that is not grace. That is not the grace that we're talking about this morning. Grace, by definition, is unmerited, undeserved, and unearned favor. And yes, those words all sort of mean the same thing. But it helps us get it. Unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. Literally, it means goodwill or beneficent or beneficial actions or favor towards someone. Grace always has the idea of actions, not just a disposition towards someone or a feeling about someone, but actually actions of goodwill, actions of favor on behalf of another person. By strict definition, it doesn't have to be unearned, but by biblical definition and, and, and definition of how it's used in God's Word, it is always unearned and undeserved. So it's the idea that something good or favorable has been given to us that we completely do not deserve. Another half of the definition which I love is the word for grace actually comes from the same root word as to rejoice. And I think this gives us an idea of how God intends us to respond to grace because the idea is to cause joy through favor or gratification. To cause thanks. And so grace not only is God's undeserved action or favor towards us, but it is also our response of joy and thanksgiving towards Him. That's all part of the definition of grace. It's all part of what grace means. 
There are different kinds of grace. There's common grace, which applies to all people. The fact that any of us have breath to, to breathe. Sinners and non-sinners. Well, we're all sinners. Saved and non-saved, sorry. <laughs> Slip of the tongue. <laughs> That's common grace. Or the rain falls on the just and the unjust. That's common grace. That God is acting on behalf of people in a common way. But this morning we are talking about saving grace. And I would include in that daily grace that we live on and continue on in. But a saving grace that is completely unmerited, undeserved, and unearned. As we think of the definition, there's two sides to it. There's two sides. One side is when we get what we don't deserve. Okay, so, so I don't deserve something and I get it. If I was to have a hundred dollar bill this morning and everyone, everyone's head went up. <laughs> um, very interesting. If I had a hundred dollar bill and just walked over to Chris and gave it to him, has Chris done anything to deserve that hundred dollar bill? Amanda, you're not allowed to answer. <laughs> to me, has he done anything? Well, you could argue that he has from, from all kinds of things. But, but no, for $100, he hasn't done anything to earn that $100. It's a, it's a gift, so he's getting something that he doesn't deserve. But grace also means not getting something that I do deserve. Not getting something that I do deserve. For instance, Joe, I don't see him sitting where he usually sits up here. He deserves to be not allowed in church because he wears a New York Yankees hat. <laughs> we could vote right now since he can't know. <laughs> and, but we don't do that because that's grace. That's a silly example. But in, in spiritual terms, it is God not giving us what we deserve in penalty and death for our sin immediately. I mean, really... As soon as we sin, God has every right to just bring judgment and bring wrath immediately. So grace, the definition has two sides. When we get what we don't deserve, when we don't get what we do deserve. Charles Spurgeon and Joseph Parker both had churches in London in the 19th century. On one occasion, Parker commented on the poor condition of children admitted to Spurgeon's orphanage. It was reported to Spurgeon, however, that Parker had criticized the orphanage itself, which he hadn't, but that's what it was reported to him. Spurgeon blasted Parker the next week from the pulpit. The attack was written in the newspapers and became the talk of the town. People flocked to Parker's church the next Sunday to hear his rebuttal. It was a different time. <laughs> Here was his response. I understand Dr. Spurgeon is not in his pulpit today. And this is the Sunday they used to take an offering for the orphanage. I suggest we take a love offering here instead. Wow. The crowd was delighted. The ushers had to empty the collection plates three times. Later that week, there was a knock at Parker's study. It was Spurgeon. You know, Parker, you have practiced grace on me. You have given me not what I deserved, but you have given me what I needed. A wonderful illustration of two godly men and one showing grace to another. It's getting what we don't deserve, not getting what we do deserve. 
So how do we be amazed by that? How do we not let that get old, not let that become routine? And you have three points in your notes that we'll, we'll go through fairly quickly because they are logical steps right out of Ephesians chapter 2. And again, it's nothing new. But unless we see them all together, grace becomes common. And God forbid that happens when we are saved by grace alone. Back to Ephesians chapter 2. Let's look at verses 1 through 3. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, and catch this sentence, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. As the Holy Spirit is inspiring Paul here to talk about grace, where does he start? He starts with our condition before grace. He starts with an accurate assessment, a realistic look at what we are without grace. And unless we start there, we can't understand the impact and the importance of grace. See, the first thing that we have to know and remember, because we know this in our heads, but do we remember this? God owes us nothing. God owes us nothing but punishment for our sins. Great way to start, huh? Anything we go and and try to make a claim on God for, well, you should do this, or you should do this, or why didn't you do this? That is all lies from the devil. Because God owes us nothing except payment for our sins. Now that isn't to try to depress us, but Paul here is setting up an accurate view of where we are at without grace and why grace alone is vital. Because if God knows us, owes us nothing but punishment for our sins, it's taking ourselves out of the mix, which is vital to understanding this. I think I put A, B, and C in your notes. Just for fun. No. <laughs> follow, follow through the understanding of what Paul is saying here. Everyone was born a sinner. Everyone was born a sinner. Did you catch words he used like all of us also lived among them at one time? gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. And I know some of this we talked about last week because they're all part of the same same concept of salvation. But everyone was born a sinner. And, and, and that's important to understand because he uses word like you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And why it's important is we didn't become dead. We were dead. Always from birth. Some argue against that mindset saying that is so unfair. Well, we're the ones as humankind that sinned against God. We're the ones that rebelled against God. And that sin affected all of humanity. Not one of us can say, I haven't sinned. We can't even say, I haven't sinned today. 
If we say that, we have no clue of what sin is and falling short of the mark and falling short of the glory of God. But our sin nature is an inherited nature. And sometimes you'll, you'll hear people talk about total depravity, which part of that is an inherited nature. Sometimes we talk about original sin. And it's all part of the, the same idea that our sin nature is inherited in every human being. Because of the actions of sin. Psalm 51, 4 and 5, as, as David is lamenting after this sin with Bathsheba, and he's repenting, and he says this to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Great verse again for sanctity of life. But our sin nature starts at conception. Romans 5.12 Therefore just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. So if we really need an accurate assessment of where we're at and whether we deserve grace, whether we deserve favor, all of us have been born sinners. And all of us have sinned. B, in your notes, our sin rightly places us under God's wrath. Our sin rightly, and that's an important word in this, our sin rightly or righteously or justly places us under God's wrath. That's the end of verse 3. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. And Paul here has already set, in verses 1-3, through he has set the, the picture of where we are without grace. And at the end of this picture, he says, okay, rightly, rightly regarded, we are objects of God's wrath. We are. Us, just like everyone else. Every person. In worship, Nick shared Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life. And again, wages meaning it's rightly earned. It's rightly earned. So death is the just and fair result. It is deserved. We also know from other passages that everyone will be judged for what they have done. Those that are believers, however, have the imputed righteousness of Christ and the ransom of Christ that takes care of that. But in Hebrews 9.27, just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And when we stand before God, every person to give an account, there will be no excuses. We won't be able to say, well, the dog ate my righteousness. (laughs) Sort of weird, but you get where I'm going with that. Well, you know, if I wasn't born into this family, I would have had such an easier time being righteous. If, if I wasn't born in California, oh, it would have been so easy. Do you know, God, what it's like to be holy in Southern California? You can't expect. There won't be any excuses. It will be, have you sinned? Or have you not? 
And we already know we have. And we're responsible for that. And so C, to demand anything from God other than judgment is crazy. Or silly, or nuts, or insane. To demand anything from God other than judgment is crazy. And do, do you get where he's going? If we're, if we're born sinners and God rightly has his wrath on us because we're sinners, then to demand anything else is just crazy and self-centered. Be like going to get a new car and walking into the car dealer and finding, my dad's looking for a Dodge right now, finding a brand new Dodge truck and figure out what you want and you say, um, you have to give that to me for $500. What would they do? They would laugh. They would throw you out. And if you persisted, they would call the police. Because you're nuts. But yet we do that with God when we demand that He treat us a certain way. And when we demand life to be a certain way and like we expect it. I remember having my business and one customer and one of the things we did in the computer business to try to to help customers have service on a regular basis, which made it easier for everyone, is we offered monthly service contracts. And I had just done a quote for this one particular business of a service contract, and um, our prices were very reasonable. And they came back and said, well, no, we can't do that. We'd like to pay maybe $25 a month. But we'd like you to come out 5 to 10 hours a month. Now, I know that was a number of years ago, but minimum wage was still above $2 an hour. (laughs) And it was nuts. It was crazy. And I told them that. (laughs) And they went with the higher quote, but that's that's a whole other story. But we come to God and we expect so much, but God owes us nothing but punishment. He doesn't owe us salvation. He doesn't owe us grace. He doesn't owe us forgiveness. He doesn't owe us blessings. And we have no rights to any of these things. So why do we expect more? And I really believe it's because we have such a high opinion of ourselves that we forget our state without grace. And we think that we are owed something because somehow we are worth it. But I start here and we spend the most time on number one this morning because the rest are more logical extensions of that as Paul goes on. But unless we understand the greatness of our sin, unless we understand the depth of our state without Christ and how trapped we are and in bondage and in slavery to sin that we cannot get out of, then we will just... Poo-poo grace away. Sorry, I have a (laughs) three-year-old. And we won't understand how beautiful and significant and amazing God's favor is on us. And we won't live like we appreciate it. It has to start here. Last week we talked about the greatness of sin and sinning against an infinite God. I just want to clarify something. Some of you came and talked to me about infinity. Yes, infinity can be directional. 
You can have infinity that starts and then goes on forever. You can theoretically, although we have no examples of it, have infinity that began from before time and then stops at some point. But last week we were talking about infinity as it applies to God. And so you're absolutely right. I stand corrected. Um, but God has no beginning and no end. And so our sin against God is infinitely despicable and deserves infinite wrath. Number two. First, God owes us nothing but punishment. Number two, nothing we can do can earn salvation. Nothing we do can earn salvation, even a little bit of it. And this, this makes sense out of one. If we, are, if we are born sinful, if we are conceived sinful, then how can we, and, and can expect nothing from God, then how can we do anything to earn that favor? And we can't. And this is a direct, direct opposition to the church at the time that the reformers were reacting against a church that said you can earn it by doing certain things. Nothing we do can earn salvation. Look again at Ephesians 2, and we'll look at 1 through 5 now, add a couple verses, but it's a theme that's through all these. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. Think about the imagery of being dead. When you die, can you help the doctor? Yeah, some of you nurses are like, that's just wrong. And when, when we are dead, we have no ability to do anything other than be dead. And so this is works contrasted to grace and faith. And, and Paul describes us as we're dead in our transgressions and sin. They have, they have us in bondage. Jumping on to verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. And the idea here is that when we look at what motivates us, what challenges us, why we do anything, what does Paul say it's coming from? Gratifying our sinful nature. Gratifying our desires. That's what our sin nature does. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of God's wrath. But because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. And He brings it up again. Even when we were dead in transgressions. Even when we were dead in transgressions, there is nothing that you can do to earn God's grace. To earn God's favor. He's not impressed when we come to church five times a week. He's not impressed when we donate a bunch of times when it, come to, when it comes to salvation. Now, it pleases Him when His children do that. But when it comes to trying to earn His favor, He is not impressed. Because our righteousness to God is what? Filthy rags. And when we think of this point, we have to think of we have absolutely no claim on salvation. The term that I like to use for this is our inability. And many theologians use that. Our inability. Turn over to Romans chapter 3. Hold, hold your finger in Ephesians 2, but turn over to Romans chapter 3. Because God's Word does a much better job of describing this. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, 
There is no one righteous, not even one. Well, that pretty much covers it right there. But he goes on. There is no one who understands. If you think of Paul describing in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 that the cross is foolishness to those that do not believe. We can't understand it in our natural man. There is no one who understands. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And Paul keeps pounding this home and he brings it up again in verses 23 and 24. And over and over he brings up our inability. No one here before God's grace sought God on their own. Brings us into a new understanding of the bondage of sin, doesn't it? And the weight of sin. And unless we understand that, we lose grace. There's a number of other verses, but we need to move on. Because we are helpless. There is nothing we can do to earn God's grace. There is nothing we do that can earn God's grace. We are opposed to God. Augustine said, For grace is given not because we have done good works, but in order that we may be able to do them. An important distinction. Why don't we like this? Why is this considered one of the difficult doctrines to teach, even though it's one of the clear doctrines of Scripture? Which is why all the Reformers, even the ones that disagreed, would agree with this point. That grace alone, they may disagree on the details of it, but grace alone saves. And it's difficult because we don't like to feel helpless. You know, give me a a self-help book and I can fix this. Give me a way to do this. And, And even when we think of salvation as a free gift of God, completely undeserved that I do nothing for, that's just wrong because in America there are no free gifts. There's nothing free. I mean... The other day, I got an email that said, you can get this software for free from one of my friends from Biola. Get this software for free. And immediately, what am I thinking? What's the catch? They want my name. They want to sign me up for something. I was looking at, just for fun, Ancestry.com, because they had some advertisements on TV that you can do your family trees and for free. And sure enough, they want your credit card number. Because it's only free for a couple of days. And then they will, out of the kindness of their heart, charge your credit card for you. Automatically. And so we're used to there's nothing free. And so we have to do something to deserve this. And that has corrupted the gospel. And that has corrupted our view of grace. Because there is nothing you can do to deserve it. And so finally we get to the conclusion. Point three. Then by grace alone, God saves us. Then by grace alone, God saves us. Back to the Ephesians 2 passage, starting at verse 4. You see a key word, but. But. And and before that, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. 
and he's left it in this crisis, in this crux. We're trapped. God deserves wrath. And it's like in Star Wars when the Death Star is coming and it's going to destroy the rebel base, for those of you that like Star Wars. And the movie's about to, everyone's about to be blown up and that's where Paul leaves it. That's his point. This is, this is horrible. And so in verse 4 he says, but, but, because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive. And that's actually the in verse 5, the made us alive is the, the verb of the sentence. That's the main verb. Everyone, everything else has been clauses. It's about God making us alive when we are dead. And that's grace. When we can do nothing, God makes us alive. Made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. Jumping to verse 8, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, referring to all of salvation, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We are saved by grace alone. There can be no other way because we, because of our inability, because of our sin. And so in the middle of this horrible situation where we deserve God's wrath, he says, I love you. I will send my son and provide a way. Have faith in me. Is grace amazing? Should grace blow us away? Is it amazing grace or is it boring grace? See, if I have to earn it, it's not as beautiful. It's just plain. It's just a favor. But if I can do nothing and God gives it to me anyway, that should capture my soul and my heart, and my life, and be what I live for. Because he has taken me out of complete death and brought me to life eternal. I challenge us to live like we are blown away by God's grace. Live like we are blown away by God's grace. A whole number of verses that we can look at that we don't have time for this morning. But He gives us His grace of salvation. He gives us grace to, to live a life for Him. And if we're amazed by grace, we can't help but want to live holy lives. Should we sin that grace may abound? No. Because the impact of grace, the impact of regeneration and justification is that we are adopted sons and daughters of the King. And that grace changes how we live. by way of application as we end. The first is, how do we live in light of grace? The first is to respond to it. If you have never given your heart to Christ, if you have never responded to the Gospel, to His grace, if you've been trying to do everything you can to get eternal life, it hasn't worked. The only way is through faith in Christ. And we'll look at that next week. Today is the day to respond to that.
God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to respond to his grace. Second application, if we've been impacted by God's grace, our calling is to extend God's grace to others. Extend God's grace to others. Both by sharing the gospel and extending God's grace that way, but simply by extending unmerited favor to people and we show them God's grace in that way. We speak the truth, but we do do it in love. And so many times we forget we are models of God's grace that might bring people to God's grace or that God may use. Third application, for those of you that, that have kids in your home, take the word fairness out of the home. Just get rid of it. Wipe it out of the dictionary. Don't allow kids to say that's not fair. Don't promote that as a parent. In so doing, we're actually promoting self-centeredness. We're promoting fighting for our own rights, and we are distracting from the grace of God. It's okay not to be fair in your home. It's okay to say they get something special today. Some of you parents are cringing. Like, do you know what that would do? Yeah, we're doing it. <laughs> and, I, and I know the battles of it. But, but then the next day it's someone else's, someone else's special day. And, and, you know, we, we pour cereal in the morning and, and the boys are like, well, he has like two more Cheerios than I do. <laughs> You're right. He does. Let's eat. <laughs> what are we teaching our kids through a doctrine of fairness? And what are we teaching them about God? Just some thoughts. In the end, do we want fairness or do we want grace? Praise God for His grace. Praise God that God isn't just fair, but that He's also loving and graceful. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, it is by grace alone that we are saved. Help us to stop thinking we deserve anything from You. To stop thinking that we are so important that you must treat us a certain way. And Lord, help us to just bow humbly to your grace and be amazed by it. Because it shows the depth of your love, the depth of your mercy. Thank you for adopting us as your children. In your name, amen.